Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be together this morning, isn't it? Another first day of the week, another Lord's Day that we've been blessed with. I hope that you had a very Merry Christmas over the last couple of days. Looking forward to the new year at the end of this week. What a blessing it is in the middle of those times to spend some time in worship to our God. As we begin this morning, I want you to think about a few scenarios with me. What would you do? How would you respond if you found yourself in these kind of situations? What if you found yourself in a situation where you were completely surrounded by snakes? Do we have anybody in here who's scared of snakes? Let's see a show of hands. Yep. My hand is up. I'm scared of snakes. What would you do if you found yourself in a situation like that one? Would you want somebody to save you? Would you want somebody to rescue you from that, to pull you out of that kind of situation? I know that I would. This kind of situation would make me wish that this man was still alive. If you don't know him, you need to know him. Steve Irwin, make me wish that he was there to rescue me from that kind of situation. For some of you, you didn't raise your hand. And you're not afraid of snakes, and that wouldn't faze you very much. So let's take it up just a notch. What if you found yourself in a situation where your house was engulfed in flames. It's engulfed in flames to the point that you're not able to escape. You're not able to get out. Would you want somebody to save you? Would you want somebody to rescue you from that? Again, if I were in that situation, I would be praying, I would be hoping that the firefighters would come as quickly as they could to get me out of a situation that I can't get myself out of. What if you found yourself in a situation where you were stranded in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on an inflatable life raft. You're completely by yourself. You have no food or water. The sun is beating down on top of you. And then all of a sudden, you look to the side of your raft and you see a little fin floating by. Would you want somebody to save you? Would you want somebody to rescue you? I know that I would. I'd have my eyes peeled for any plane flying over top or boat coming towards me. If I saw one, I'd jump up screaming, throwing my arms up, hoping that they would notice me, hoping that they could come save me from a situation that I can't save myself from. Now I want you to think about a situation that you really don't have to imagine. I want you to think about a situation that Really, we've all 
experienced. Regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, this is a place where we have all been. This is a situation that we have found ourselves in. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions to that. That includes you. That includes me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made decisions that were sinful in nature. We've all made rebellious decisions at several points in our lives. Perhaps each and every day we live, we point our fingers at God and we tell Him, I'm going to do things my way. God, I don't want to do things your way. I don't want to do things the way that you've told me to do them. I'm going to do things the way that I want to do them. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How does that impact us spiritually? How does that impact our relationships with God? Well, if you go over to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, here's what Isaiah has to say. He says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul is talking to the Ephesians about where they were, where they used to be before they had relationships with Jesus. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You go to Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the price that we should have to pay for our sin, what we deserve as a result of our sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How does that impact us spiritually? How does that impact our relationships with Jesus? Our sin puts us in a very dangerous situation where we are completely separated from God. Our sin puts us in a helpless situation. A situation that we can't do anything about where we are dead in the trespasses and sins that we're walking in. Our sin puts us in a hopeless situation where we deserve nothing short of death where we deserve an eternity that is defined by death as opposed to an eternity that is defined by life. You might want somebody to save you if you were completely surrounded by snakes. You might want somebody to save you if your house was completely engulfed in flames. You might want somebody to save you if you were stranded in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a life raft with no food or water. What if you find yourself in a situation this morning where your sin is separating you from your God? What if you find yourself in that dangerous, hopeless, helpless situation this morning where instead of looking forward to an eternity defined by life, all that's available is an eternity defined by death? What if you find yourself in a situation this morning where if you were to die tonight, you know that your eternity would be defined by death instead of being defined by life. The question is, if you find yourself in that situation, wouldn't you want somebody to save you? Wouldn't you want somebody to rescue you? Wouldn't you want somebody to deliver you from that? Sin separating us from God? Well, here's the good news. When we go to Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, which this morning we're going to spend all of our time in the book 
of Acts. When we go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter boldly proclaims that there is salvation. That's the key word. Underline that word. Highlight that word. Put it in bold. Put it in italics. That's what we're talking about this morning. That there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other, na- there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There are a lot of different people who could save you from being surrounded by snakes. There are a lot of different people who could save you from a burning building. There are a lot of different people, airplanes, boats, that could save you from being stranded in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. What we need to recognize this morning is that there is only one who can save us from our sin. There is only one who can save us from the biggest problem that we have, and His name is Jesus. Before we continue any further in this lesson, as we think about salvation this morning, what we need to recognize is that salvation is all about Jesus. Salvation is possible only because of Jesus. Salvation is not about me and it's not about you. Salvation is not about what we do or what we don't do. Salvation is not about how far we strayed or how many sins we've committed. It's not about who we are. It's not about the words we say. It's not about the things that we do. First and foremost, salvation is all about Jesus. Salvation is only possible because of Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's consider that together from the book of Acts. As we think about the topic of salvation, I want us to ask three questions. Question number one, what I believe to be a very important question, how do I receive it? Jesus offers us this great gift of salvation, the greatest gift. As Kim was talking about it just a few moments ago as He led our thoughts in the Lord's Supper, Jesus offers us the greatest gift, a greater gift than we can even imagine. So how do we receive that gift? How do we gain access to the benefits that flow from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Did you know that's a question that's asked in the book of Acts? If you go back to our Scripture reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, Peter is standing before thousands of Jews on the day of Pentecost preaching to them about how they were responsible for putting to death the Son of God. The Bible says in 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, Jewish brothers, what shall we do? Notice the question that they're asking. They recognize that they're the ones responsible for putting to death the one whom God had made both Lord and Christ. And so they're crying out. They're interrupting Peter's sermon. What do we need to do about this? How can we be in the right relationship with God? If you go to Acts chapter 16 and verse number 30, the Philippian jailer is speaking to Paul and Silas. And he asked the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a powerful, relevant question. Isn't it? I think it's a question that's answered whenever we approach the pages of God's Word, when we read through the New Testament, and specifically when we read throughout the eight conversion stories in the book of Acts, we see a pattern for how we dedicate our lives to Jesus. We see a pattern that answers this question. What do I need to do to be in the right relationship with God? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Throughout Acts, in order to be saved, people were commanded to place their belief in Jesus. If we're going to receive salvation that comes from Jesus, then we have to place our faith in Him. 
We have to trust Him. Remember the question we just saw in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell him what he needs to do at that moment. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, Peter's standing before Cornelius and his household. He says to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who what? Believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Throughout the book of Acts, in order to receive this salvation from Jesus, we have to believe in Him. We have to place our trust in Him. It's interesting though that that's not all that Scripture requires us to do. There are a lot of religious groups today that teach just place your faith in Jesus, maybe recite this prayer here, invite Him into your heart, and that's all that you need to do to receive His salvation. That's not what we find in Scripture, and it's not what we find in the book of Acts. As we continue reading, we find that in order to be saved, people in Acts were commanded to repent of their sins. We talked about that last week. Change the way you think. So that you'll change the way that you live. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Peter very boldly proclaimed from Solomon's portico, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 17 and verse 30, Paul makes a pretty sweeping statement, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. How do we receive this great gift of salvation? I place my trust in Jesus. I decide I'm not going to be who I used to be. I'm going to live this new life in Jesus. I'm going to repent of my sins. And then we find that we have to confess Jesus. To publicly confess our belief in Him. While that's not commanded through the book of Acts, we do have an example of it. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 37, Philip is preaching Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch from Isaiah chapter 53. As they're riding down the road, the eunuch looks over and says, see, here's water. What stops me from being baptized? What, what hinders me from doing that? Peter said, or rather Philip said to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you pair that next to scriptures like Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we see the importance of confessing faith in Jesus in our salvation, in our conversion experience. Believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess that trust in Him before other people. But then when we continue reading in Acts, it doesn't stop there. People believe in Jesus, they repent of their sins, they confess belief in His name, and they still aren't saved according to Scripture and specifically according to the book of Acts. In order to be saved, people were commanded to be baptized, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins. We saw the question back in Acts 2.37 where the Jews were cut to the heart and cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what shall we do? Peter tells them what to do. He tells them, repent, which we mentioned a moment ago. Repent and be baptized, be immersed, every one of you, no exceptions, in the name of Jesus Christ. What's the purpose? For unto the forgiveness of your sins. There are many religious groups that talk about baptism as an outward sign of inward faith and transformation. 
I'm saved by Jesus, and then maybe a few weeks later, I'm going to be baptized, and I'll make that decision later. It's just an outward sign of the inward faith that I have and the salvation that I've received. Notice that's not the way baptism is described in Acts 2. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the purpose. For the forgiveness of your sins. When we're immersed in the waters of baptism, that is when the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. He says the end result is that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ananias told Saul something very similar. In Acts 22.16, And now why do you wait? There's a sense of urgency to this. Why tarriest thou? Why are you waiting? Why are you delaying? Rise. Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on His name. Perhaps you've seen a chart like this one before. I think that it's helpful in a lot of different ways. A chart like this one takes the eight different conversion stories that you find in the book of Acts and it mentions what those people did in order to be saved. Notice throughout the majority of them, belief is mentioned, repentance is mentioned, confession is mentioned. What's interesting to me, in every single case of conversion in the book of Acts, they are immediately baptized. They are immediately immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins. The point at which their sins are forgiven. The point at which that salvation that Jesus extends was applied to their souls. What an important step that is. How do I receive Jesus' great gift of salvation in Acts? And again, we could go to many different passages of Scripture. This is just a bird's eye view, a 3,000 foot view on salvation and how we receive this in the book of Acts. I place my trust in Jesus. I repent of my sins. I confess His name. I'm immersed in the waters of baptism. And as Paul says in Romans 6, when I'm raised up out of the waters, I'm raised up to newness of life. So it Really, I think Acts invites us to think about ourselves. What does your conversion experience look like? How were you saved by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus? Does it match the pattern that we find in the New Testament? Does it match the pattern that we find in the book of Acts? If it doesn't, then what does that mean? What is that going to look like? Question number two, what are the results of it? Let's say that we buy into this. Let's say, okay, I'm going to become a Christian the way that the Bible says. I did what they did in the New Testament. I've received what they received. I'm a Christian. I've been buried in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of my sins. Now, what kind of results is that going to have in my life? How am I going to be changed by that decision? How am I going to be transformed by that decision? In the book of Acts, there are a lot of different things that we could say. But I think that there are three that rise to the surface. The first one is perhaps the hardest one. Persecution. Whenever people received salvation from Jesus in the book of Acts, they were persecuted. They experienced great difficulty. Jesus promised them that that would be the case. In John chapter 15 and verse 19, if you look at the end of that verse, he says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Jesus warned His apostles, you're going to be persecuted. The world is going to hate you. And that comes full swing in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1 talks about how there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And all the Christians in Jerusalem were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Well, when we look at the apostles, we find that they were arrested several different times in Acts. They were beaten. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and James in Acts chapter 12 were martyred as a result of this great persecution that arose against the Lord's church. Whenever we receive salvation from Jesus, a natural result of that is going to be persecution. Are you willing to suffer for your faith? Are you willing to endure people saying and doing negative things to you because of your decision to follow Jesus? Perhaps another result that we could mention is community. I love how community is described in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Whenever we dedicate our lives to Jesus, we automatically become a part of this community. We're invited to be an active participant in a community of people who belong to the Lord. Look at how that is displayed in Acts 2. So here are the 3,000 souls that we read about in our Scripture reading who gladly received His Word and were baptized. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved notice the community there They lived life together. They were involved in one another's lives, not just on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. They were involved in one another's lives throughout the week. They were worshiping together. They were in and out of one another's homes. They were sitting down and eating together. They were perfectly united in doctrine, perfectly united in emotion, perfectly united in practice. Whenever we receive Jesus' salvation, we fit into a community of those who have also made that decision. We become active participants in that community. The question is, if you've received this gift of salvation, are you an active participant in a community dedicated to Jesus? Are you living out what's the principles and the ideas that are found in this text where they're sharing with one another and they're worshiping with one another, they're involved in one another's lives? Are you connected in the church family here at Seven Oaks? Or is it something that has become disconnected? Is it something that has become stagnant? The third result that we'll mention, again, there are many more, is evangelism. When people in Acts received salvation from Jesus, they could not help themselves but to share that message. They experienced Jesus for themselves, and they wanted other people to have that opportunity as well. Acts chapter 4 and verse 20, I think sometimes we cut this verse a little bit short in the way that we live. This is Peter and and John and the rest of the apostles. They've been threatened not to preach about Jesus anymore. And here's their response. We cannot but speak. Sometimes we stop there. Oh, we can't speak. 
We're not telling other people about Jesus. We're not evangelizing. We're not sharing the gospel. We're not sharing the good news. Sometimes we cut that verse a little bit short. But notice as, as the apostles continue, they're on the other extreme. We can't but speak of what we've seen and heard. They had experienced Jesus. They had spent time with Jesus. And they could not help themselves but to share that with other people. Remember Paul's conversion story in Acts chapter 9? Do you know what he did as soon as he was baptized? Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, look at the word immediately. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the Son of God. If you back up just a few days, Paul walking into a synagogue, he would have been a very respected leader. People would have looked up to him. He would have ran the service. But as soon as he's converted to Jesus, he steps into the very same synagogues with a very different message. Proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. But it's not just the apostles. See, it's not just Peter and John and Paul like we saw in Acts 4 and 9. It's the entire church. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, remember those who were persecuted in Jerusalem and they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria? The Bible says in verse 4 that those who were scattered went about preaching the Word, sharing the good news, sharing the Gospel with those who they came into contact with. Are we doing that? The first question is, have you experienced Jesus? Have you experienced how great Jesus is? If you have, then why aren't you telling other people about it? Don't you want other people to have those opportunities as well? To experience Jesus for themselves? Question number two, what are the results of the salvation that we receive from Jesus? A lot more could be said here, but three that rise to the surface. Persecution. Community evangelism then question number three don't you want to be a part of it the book of acts lays it out for us here's how you receive it here's how you become a part of this and then it steps over and says here's how it's going to impact your life here are the results of jesus's salvation and the transformation that it brings then the book of Acts steps back and invites us into the story. Don't you want to be a part of it? In Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus talks about the great value of salvation. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He follows that up in the next couple verses with another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Whether we come across salvation on accident or on purpose, whether we stumble on salvation or whether it's something that we're diligently searching for, Jesus says it has great value. It brings great joy. What we're talking about this morning, what Jesus offers in His blood, is something that is worth giving up everything for. See, Jesus teaches us that in Matthew chapter 13. And we see that so powerfully demonstrated time and time again in the book of Acts. Notice this list with me. How valuable and significant salvation is. Salvation is the result of the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of the sinless Messiah. Emphasized in Acts chapter 2. Jesus Christ, God Himself, came to earth 
in the flesh, lived as a man, died, suffered, was nailed to the cross, laid in a tomb for three days, rose on the third day, exalted to the right hand of God, where He is now serving as our intercessor and faithful high priest. Why did He do it? Because of what we're talking about this morning. That is how valuable salvation is. Salvation is what rescues us from the crooked world. We read that in our Scripture reading. Salvation is what made the disciples of one heart and soul. Salvation supplies us with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When the apostles were beaten by the Sanhedrin, watch this, salvation is why they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. Isn't that amazing? They were beaten and they were threatened. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Did they leave discouraged? Did they leave disheartened? They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. That's how valuable salvation is. Salvation is the reason why Stephen and James gave their lives. We mentioned that earlier. Salvation is what tears down racial prejudices and barriers. Salvation is what caused much joy both within cities as a whole and individuals in particular. Salvation is what brought about transformation in the one who breathed out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, the one who became known as the Apostle Paul. Salvation is what brings about forgiveness through His name. Salvation is why Paul spent about 10 years of his life on three separate missionary journeys. Paul, tell me why you dedicated a decade of your life to traveling to all of these different places on three different occasions. Why did you do it? It's one word, salvation. To offer that gift to those who would not have otherwise had it. Whenever Paul was dragged out of Lystra and stoned, salvation is the reason that he got up and immediately went back into the city. You're preaching about Jesus. You're dragged out of the city. You're stoned. Your associates, those, the missionary team who's traveling with you thinks that you're dead. What are you going to do next? Paul gets up. He dusts himself off and walks back into the city because that's how valuable salvation is. Salvation is why the people of Ephesus made a bonfire out of their magic books that were worth about 50,000 pieces of silver. That's what repentance looks like. Salvation is what caused the disciples to do what we're doing this morning, to break bread on the first day of the week. Salvation is the reason that Paul served the Lord with humility, tears, and trials. Salvation is what caused Paul to appeal to Caesar whenever he probably could have been set free from prison. At the end of the book of Acts, and I think put very simply, maybe a summary statement, salvation is what turned the world upside down. Here's how you receive it. It's not very hard to understand, is it? Here's how it's going to change you. Here's what you should expect. And now we take a step back and say, don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world? Don't you want to be a part of what Jesus is doing within this group of people? I read a story about a couple driving down the road. They were almost out of gas, trying to get to the nearest gas station. But it absolutely came a blizzard. It snowed and it snowed and it snowed to the point where they had to pull over their car. And so as they pulled over their car, they thought, you know, how, how are we going to deal with this? It's freezing cold outside. The snow is piling down on top of us. They were trying to ration out their gas. We'll turn it on for a little bit, then we'll turn it off, then we'll turn it on to warm up. Well, after a couple of hours, they ended up running out of gas 
And whenever rescuers came the next morning, the couple, the man and the woman, had frozen to death. The lady had taken a notepad from in the back seat and scribbled down a little note. It said, we didn't want to die this way. What makes this story perhaps even more tragic is that just 20 feet behind them, there was a huge greyhound tour bus. And when the rescuers came to the tour bus and cleared all the snow off the side, the people came out warm, full, happy, healthy. What's the difference between the two? You have one that froze to death, a couple, and then you have many people coming out of a Greyhound bus completely fine, warm, happy. They were able to sleep that night very comfortably. The couple in the car were close, weren't they? Oh, just 20 more feet. And they would have survived that night. They, they didn't have to die that way. But close doesn't equal salvation. Close wasn't enough to save their lives. Salvation. The words of Hebrews chapter 2 come to my mind. He asked a question that I think once you hear it, it sticks. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The book of Acts tells us everything that we need to know about it. It tells us how to receive it. It tells us what the results are going to be. And then it invites us to be a part of the story. Don't you want to be a part of it? If you're not a part of it, can I tell you that you don't have to die this way? Close doesn't equal salvation. I mean, look at how close you are right now. We're worshiping together in the presence of the Lord. Over the last few minutes, we've been reading through His Word. We've been talking about this great gift. But just because you're close doesn't mean that you're saved. Would you make the decision this morning? If you're not ready to make that decision, would you allow us the opportunity to study with you? To talk with you? Maybe you don't agree with what we've suggested from the book of Acts. There are a lot of religious groups that don't agree with what we've been talking about. Let's discuss that. Let's talk about that. But if you're ready to receive this great gift of salvation, it just takes a few steps down this front aisle. As together, we stand and sing.